Well, good morning, neighbors. Uh, Jesus, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, we read these words that he said. He said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Another uh, paraphrased translation from Eugene Peterson. I like the way he kind of captures some of this. Listen to these words. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God flavors of this earth. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. And if I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. And now that I've put you there on a hilltop on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God, this generous Father in heaven. Love those verses. If you, not long after the, that moment where Jesus taught those passages, he had already been crucified. And he, just before his ascension, after the resurrection, he was gathering with his followers one last time. His task on earth was complete. And he was ready to go home. And on this quiet hillside in Jerusalem, Jesus unveils his global plan to take the kingdom of God into the world. Now, it's important to keep in mind, just a couple of days before this, Jesus' followers had experienced a whirlwind of emotion. One minute, they're laughing with Jesus, they're learning from Jesus, they're worshiping Jesus. The next moment, they're sobbing at his violent crucifixion on a cross. Some of his followers scattered because they were fearful of their own death. Uh, many, some, uh, one in particular, denied him. But then the resurrection happened, and we all know that event, right? Many of them had been taught these hopes of a conquering Messiah. It's what they've been taught since they were children in the Jewish homes and Jewish synagogues. And those hopes were once again ignited. So they gathered together to hear Jesus talk about, what's your plan for how this is going to work around the world? How are we going to tell other people about you? And about this God. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they ask him this question. They say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? There's a translation for that verse, and it's this. Is it time to stop messing around with these pesky Romans and show them who's boss? That's what his followers wanted to know. And it's what any good Jew wanted to know who had bought into this Jesus as the Messiah. Are you the strong-armed military Messiah that we've been talking about? And Jesus surprises them as Jesus often does. And he continues to do even to this day. In verse 7 of chapter 1 in Acts, he says, It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father is set by his authority. We're all going to find out together, aren't we? It's not for us to know. But then in verse 8, verse 8, he rolls out what I believe is Jesus' plan for how he was going to take the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom, into the nooks and the crannies and the cul-de-sacs of the world. He says this, But you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, I don't know if you caught that, particularly the part where it says, you, he's talking to his followers, he's talking to followers of Jesus, says, you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Think of a pebble thrown into a, a real calm pond of water, and the ripple effect that goes out. 
Jesus is saying, you are going to be my witnesses. There's no magic bullet. There's no great outreach event. There's no 40 days of something that we could do as a church. No wave of the wand that's going to just do it to take Jesus to the world. Jesus' plan, you and I. That's his plan. And maybe that intimidates you and scares you a little bit because we look in the mirror and we realize how inadequate we are. But Jesus said, no, my plan is that you are going to take me around the world, locally, nationally, internationally. Jesus' strategy to get it done, taking the name of Jesus where we live, work, and play. In the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time talking about what I call the here, near, and far away. We're going to talk about the here, uh, where we live, where we work, and where we play. And particularly, I'm going to focus today and spend the majority, where we spend the majority of our waking hours, and that's where we live, work, and play, particularly where you live. Now, Luke 10 is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. You're, you're welcome to open it on an app or in your, your actual physical Bible, whatever you've got. Luke 10, just leave it open. We're going to go there a couple of times where Jesus has an encounter. Now, this is a famous story. You've heard it preached. You've read it and uh, probably been to a hospital that's been named after this particular story or something like that. But let's look together in chapter 10, verses 25, and we'll start with 25 to 28. So on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is the expert in the law's answer, okay? And Jesus says to him in verse 28, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. So the expert in the religious law, as these kind of experts tend to try to do, they they sort of want to trip people up. So they ask leading questions, hoping that you'll answer in a way that they can use your answer and say, ha ha, tricked you. And that's what this guy's trying to do with Jesus, but he's working with Jesus here. So he's not got a whole lot of hope there. Maybe hoping to pigeonhole him into saying something that he can use against him. But the problem here is, and the expert soon finds this out, Jesus isn't too interested in religious questions. He's more interested in relationships. And his answer focuses on relationship, not religion. So Jesus answers him with a question. And the legalists ask a perfectly legalist question, right? We're going to pick on legalism just for a little bit this morning. The legalists ask a perfectly legalist question in verse 25. What must I do to get eternal life. Legalists have this way of living their life by a series of checklists and to-do lists. So this question fits perfectly into that mindset. And of all the things I could do, of all the ways I could live my life, what's the minimum that I can do to still be in the club? That's really what he's asking. So the expert in the law answers like any good Jewish person would answer. He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus plays along with him, and verse 28 says, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Well, the expert had a follow-up question. He wasn't ready to drop it right there. And the text says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. So I want you to know why I'm asking you this question and why I answered the way I did. And he follows up with this question. So who is my neighbor? Now, remember, those who live with a legalist mindset, it's all about checking off the to-do list, making sure you do all the things 
that you're supposed to do, that a good follower of Jesus is supposed to do. So the expert is really asking this question, okay, exactly who do I have to love? Because there are some people I'm not sure I want to love. Okay? Now, it doesn't say that in the text. But that's where he's going, because that's the way legalism tends to work. The expert had what some refer to, and I'm going to use this phrase a couple of times this morning, a transactional worldview. Now, it's no surprise that he thought in terms of that life is a series of transactions. You do these things today, and you can say, oh, it was a good day. I did them all. I'll go to bed and get up tomorrow, and I'll do these things again. And in spiritual life, that just becomes awful, quite frankly. But the Jewish folks would know this, and that's the kind of part of the way they live. There were 613 commands in the Jewish law, and by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, there were thousands of layers of interpretations that rabbis had placed on all of these teachings and all of these laws. So they had all of this stuff, and they had boiled down the idea of loving God and loving others to a to-do list of do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs. You're only in the club if you do these things. Which, which in turn means there's some things you don't do. Transactions. It's a transactional worldview. And as long as this expert in the law was able to check something off the box, he was good to go. So his question had nothing to do with the neighbor. His question had zero to do with the neighbor. It had everything to do with himself. And that's the crux of the matter this morning. In his book, The Neighboring Church, Rick Russell, whose church makes a great deal of effort to bridge the gap between neighborhoods and the church itself. He says this, the religion expert wants to talk about transactions, but Jesus wants to talk about transformation. Kingdom living is about moving away from transactional events and the checklist that we all think is there and toward more transformative opportunities and relationships. So Jesus tells a story. It's a familiar story that you know. We're going to read it quickly. But remember, the question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers this story. There's hospitals are named after this. It's a tagline that's used for people who go out of their way to help someone in need, the Good Samaritan. So let's start with verse 36 of Luke chapter 10. Excuse me, verse 30. Um, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. And said, look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. So in verse 36, after Jesus has told this story, he looks at the expert in the law and he says, so which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law, at least in the way Jesus tells the story, he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. There's a reason for that we'll get to in a moment. So much detest about this particular group of people. He wouldn't even say the word. What he did say was the one who had mercy on him in verse 37. The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Back in verse 28, the beginning of this, 
when uh, he asked the, the, the initial question and Jesus said, what do you think? He said, well, I think you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, do this and you will live. At the end of this, he says, now go and do likewise. So the summary, the bookend summary of this passage is this. If you and I treat others the way the Samaritan did, we're going to live. What that means is we'll be operating in the sweet spot, as they say, right in the heart of where God wants us to be, living in a way that he had in mind for us all along. So if you catch nothing else this morning, that's the summary. Treat people the way the Samaritan did. Be Jesus wherever you can. Now, there's a lot that can be pulled from this story, and a lot has been pulled over time, and we're not going to get into nitty-gritty and talk about, you know, all the different things that are here. But there's a couple things that are important to know. Yes, there were two people, there were people of the cloth who walked by. People that you would expect might have some level of compassion and might do something. Even if they personally couldn't help, they could see to it that someone would help. And for whatever reason, they don't. We don't know their reasons. Perhaps they're in a hurry. Perhaps they're fearful of their own safety. The passage doesn't really tell us. Jesus, that the point of the story isn't that. The third passerby in the story was a Samaritan. And most scholars note the brilliance of using a Samaritan in the story that Jesus tells. Because Samaritans were largely looked down upon and despised by the Jews. To say they weren't well-liked would be an understatement. It's sort of like some people, so I've heard, might think about Michigan football or fans of that. So I don't know. I've only heard rumors. I, I don't share those allegiances, but heard stories. But Jesus chooses for the Samaritan to be the compassionate one in the story, which throws a huge curveball uh, to the teacher of the law. Who, and, and so he delayed whatever his agenda was. The Samaritan stopped everything, inconvenienced himself to go help somebody in need. So why pick on the Levite and the priest, the people of the cloth, the people that should know better? Why pick on them like Jesus did? Religious men who usually repeated the Shema a number of times a day, so they knew, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor yourself. That was not new to them. And yet they ignored a need right in front of them. Well, I want to suggest that Jesus wants us in this particular story to think about transformation, not transaction. So by choosing the priest and Levite to illustrate the story, Jesus does this. He lays a critical foundation for what it means for you and I for good neighboring. I'll explain. Jesus is challenging all those who follow him to move from a place of religious complexity to a place of relational simplicity. It is not enough. It is not enough to have all the right thinking, to have all the correct theology. Goodness knows we fought a lot of battles on that front and, and we continue to fight them. All over the place. Churches fight these battles, uh, these theological battles. And there are wounded people all over the world that want nothing left to do with the church because all they saw were battles, battles, and more battles. But if we're going to love God, then that love has to express itself somehow in how we love others. God's plan for our growth, for us personally to move forward in our faith and to understand how to live out grace and faith is through relationships with people. It's not just about knowing all the right stuff. It's certainly not at all about just winning all the arguments. So, how do I love my neighbor? I want to suggest a few things this morning. First is, perhaps we have to lose our religion. Now, what do I mean by that? The answer to this question, do we have a tendency sometimes 
to love our religion more than we love our neighbor. I realize it's super easy to pick on the priest and the Levite in this story, but they probably went through the same kind of internal dialogue that you and I go through when we're faced with a situation that might be similar, especially if it's super inconvenient. I don't have the time right now for this. This is going to be messy. This is not a just to help somebody one time. This is an ongoing thing. You know, all the internal dialogue that we all tend to do, I'm sure those guys were doing that. What is going to happen to me if I stop and help? We constantly, perhaps subconsciously, evaluate situations based on what does it do to me? How does it impact me? Was there some risk involved? Was there some inconvenience involved? Was there time necessary? Yeah, all those things were true. We're not sure why they didn't stop. Perhaps it's because the road wasn't safe. Perhaps they would have been uh, stripped of some of their duties and titles and livelihood if they were late for some important ceremony. We don't know. I'm not trying to defend them. But Jesus seems to want us to uncover this truth in this passage, I think. When we love others, there is an amount of risk and sacrifice that's involved. And more importantly, we need to prioritize people over religion, which often tends to be a checklist of transactional things. So we may have to lose our religion. We may also have to step outside of our tribe. We tend to spend a lot of our time, don't we? with people who are exactly like us. And I think that's just a basic human thing. It's not going away. I'm not saying cut off all your friends that you've (laughs) spent time getting to know. That's not the point. But what if your neighbors, whom we're reading about here, that we're called to love, the people who live on your street, what if they're not like you? Ask yourself another question. Do all my acquaintances think exactly like me, agree with me on all my worldviews, and even vote like me? Because that's sort of what we've become, isn't it? And I think it's sad. It's well documented. We don't need to spend a lot of time on it, but we live in a pretty fractured world right now. The, the political divide has always been there, I know. But doesn't it seem like the last dozen or 20 or so years, couple decades, whatever it is, it just seems more hateful. And it seems way bigger deal than it used to in the first part of my life, at least. Maybe I'm just paying more attention now. I think social media is part of it, things we would keep close to the chest. We, we used to maybe share with our friends at work around the water cooler or the guy across the fence. Now we're keyboard warriors and we just say whatever we want, whenever we want, with little, little ramification. And we like to stir the pot. No sector of life seems to be immune to division, does it? it certainly affects the church from time to time. And it's real easy for us to look at people who aren't in our tribe and to make assumptions and to draw conclusions. And usually assumptions and drawing conclusions about people, you know what that does? You know what it doesn't do? It never leads to loving them. It always leads to the opposite. And they sort of become the Samaritans of our day. People that we don't particularly care for. And we're okay coexisting as long as they stay kind of on their property line and don't really... I don't want to have much to do with them because they're not in my tribe. Different value system. Maybe they don't worship God at all. Or maybe they worship some different version of God than you. Maybe they look different and act different. And maybe they might pull a different lever at the voting booth. Those are all things that are real. A number of years ago, I I read this from an author who's, I can't find the book any longer. casualty of the move, I guess, but, but he's, he's talking about Christians being people of the good news. 
That we're supposed to be people of the good news. And when a person of the good news moves into a neighborhood, well, guess what? That should be good news for everybody. Uh, because a representative of Jesus has moved into the block. And that should be good news for everyone. That should be really good news to the single mom who lives next door who's just trying to, trying to feed the kids and, and pay the bills and get it done and pulling her hair out at the same time. That should be good news to the senior citizen who happens to be a widower who lives across the street. That should be good news to the guy a couple of doors down that you think might be a Muslim, but you really don't know because you've never talked to him. You're just making an assumption. And that should be good news to the house behind you where you're not quite sure all that's going on there all hours of the night, but you think there's hijinks involved of some sort. Good news. You are people of the good news. A representative of Jesus is in the neighborhood. And shouldn't we be busy about being Jesus to our neighbors? You might have to lose your religion. You might have to step outside of your tribe. And you may need to start think, rethinking how we love God and love others. Not just transactions that we click off a list, but loving sacrificially. It's a really easy trap to fall into, and churches haven't really done it any favors at all, because we're guilty of making church something that we do. And church is a transactional event. We came, we did our thing, we checked it off our list, and truth be told, myself and many others are in the business of spending an awful lot of time preparing for people to come to weekend transactions. Jesus is speaking to the expert in the law who knew all about that. He probably spent a lot of time in the synagogue. He probably never missed. He, he would have been in some sort of study of Scripture. He had tons of it memorized. Where he, understanding more and more the nature of the law and what God intended with it. He would have been held accountable for doing the right things. And maybe that sounds all too familiar to some of us, myself in particular. But here's the crux of it. Was loving God and knowing all the right things translating into how he lived his life? Now, please don't misunderstand me. There's a lot of good that comes from gathering together. There's a lot of good. Scripture talks about gathering and scattering. And gathering like we do to worship and to learn and to encourage one another is certainly part of loving God and loving others. But Jesus here is talking about a transformational lifestyle, not a transactional checklist. Finally, I want to suggest that we need to ask a better question. The transactional question is this, who is my neighbor? And it almost brings me to the idea that he's really asking, well, where's the line exactly? Who fits on my quota sheet so I can check the boxes? And more importantly, what he's not saying here is who's not on my list? Who can I not spend much attention to? But a transformative question is this, how can I love my neighbor? How am I supposed to love? To what degree should I go to Love those that are in my proximity or in my sphere of influence and beyond. See, loving your neighbor isn't about religion at all. It's about compassion. And in Jesus' story, the plot twist here was a controversial person becomes the hero. An incredibly controversial person is the hero. The Samaritan had all the wrong religion. Worshipped things that they didn't really understand. Jewish people didn't. He was affiliated with all sorts of other things, and he was despised by the Jews. And Jesus said, you know what? I'm going to tell a story, and I'm going to make him the hero. The guy on the outside looking in was going to be the one who understood the love your neighbor thing. Isn't that fascinating that Jesus would do that? He was the guy that had it figured out. The hero didn't just think nice thoughts. He took action. 
The hero didn't just think good thoughts, he took action. We cannot fully obey God's command to love God and love others by just thinking nice things about them. We do that a lot, but there has to be action behind it. To love them, we sometimes have to get off our chair, venture out the door, leave our comfort zone, and go into theirs. I want to end this morning with just some action steps. These are no-brainer things, but I think they're good things. Uh, I think you could come up with better ones, and I hope that you will. But here's some things that are action steps for loving our neighbors. Invite them over. Duh, right? Assist on a project. Very friendly, but not in a weird way. You know what I mean, right? We've all had the weird neighbor who was over-friendly. There's an agenda there that you're not sure about. Don't be that guy. Smile, wave, say their name. Pray for them by name and be specific. Now, I've mentioned name a couple times. How many of you can name your neighbors on the left, the right, across the street, behind you? And can you ripple out even further? Can you do two houses down, two houses down, two houses on either side across the street? I'm ashamed to tell you how many neighbors on my street that I can name. I'm getting brand new ones in a couple weeks right next door. I'm going to do this better this time around with these folks. Driveway conversations. Compliment the landscaping. Anything you can do to find a point of contact and a point of interest that you can talk about. Ask about the grandkids. They'll probably be happy to talk about that. Pray for the Holy Spirit to give some sort of opening, some sort of faith, some sort of crack in the conversation where after you get to know them for a while, you might be able to insert a faith conversation. Pray for that. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit will work when we invite him in. Don't treat people like a project. If they think, well, you only want to be nice to me so I can go to your church someday. They see right through that. Don't treat them like a project. But once you've built a relationship, they're going to find out that this faith thing is part of your life. Feel free to invite them. We're six weeks away from Easter. Um, For some of us, that's frightening because there's so much that we want to do leading up to that. Easter is a time when a lot of people who aren't necessarily people of faith still trickle into a church. Why not this one? Why not your neighbor join us? Uh, We have these little invite cards. We do them often, but we've got brand new ones for this Easter. Uh, You can grab one today. And my hope is you'll take that home and you'll set it there and you'll start praying by name of a neighbor or two. That as time goes in the next six weeks, that the Holy Spirit would give some sort of opportunity for you to have a conversation and maybe even invite them to church on Easter. Our prayer with this particular series is that we'll develop some intentionality about where we live. And it takes intentionality in how we live, where we live. That we'll have a sense of purpose toward being the people of good news. You have the good news. Why are we keeping it to ourselves? There was a time in our country when the front porch mattered. You know, some of you remember those days. Some of you may live in a house that was built back in those days where the front porches matter on your street. But as time went on, things changed. We don't necessarily know our neighbors because we spent time with them on our front porch. We don't know their dog's names. We don't know all the things because that's the way community life used to be. But as innovation and design evolved, everything that took place on the front porch now is in the back, isn't it? We got patios, we got fire pits, and we've got privacy fences. I mean, you ever see a family at a fire pit roasting hot dogs in the front yard? You don't see that, do you? I mean, if you did see that, the first thing you would say, well, who are these weirdos? You know, nobody does that. 
Those are activities that we largely keep in the backyard and we keep them to ourselves. If we have any friends with us at all, it's from the aforementioned group of folks that look and act just like us that we invite over. It's amazing how few times that's any of your neighbors. It's people who live all over the place, who drive to your house. And yet we've got people next door and all around us that we continue to be disconnected with. Meanwhile, people all up and down your street are doing the same version of what you're doing in their backyard with their privacy fence, and we're all cocooned behind our closed garage doors, and we seldom intersect. And it's rare sometimes that they ever find out that a representative of Jesus who has the good news lives a couple doors down. They'll never know that. Some sociologists even think it's going to get worse because right now at the click of a button from an app on your phone, you can have everything you need with the exception of real life human interaction, you, and probably even that. But there's an app, you can push a button, and somebody will deliver it to you. In fact, you've probably got neighbors that do that. You got that house on your street where you never see anybody? You know there's a car, and you're, there's, wind, there's, there's curtains in the window, so you assume it's inhabited, but you've never seen a person. You have no idea how the yard gets cut, it just happens. Friends, can we change that? <laughs> can we commit to grow and develop to a point where we see being a follower of Jesus has less to do with checking off the box of just, oh, I made it to church, I did all the right things, and all the things that somehow we decided a Christian's supposed to do these things, and can we just start taking Jesus where we spend the overwhelming majority of our time? What if you could be the best neighbor your neighbor's ever had? What if? What if someday at the funeral home, when they come to pay respects for you, that the overwhelming thing they talk about, sure, they talk about your faith and you were Jesus, but somebody says, the best neighbor I ever had. He loved me, cared for me. If I had a need, he was there. What if you were the best neighbor your neighbor's ever had? And this morning, I don't know what kind of decision you might make. I know a lot of us carry decisions around, and maybe you need to make that first decision to make Jesus Lord of your life. If that's it, then please. It doesn't matter what we talk about today. That's of paramount importance for you. Maybe you've just been terrible at this neighbor thing. Maybe you just admit, well, I stink at this, and I need to be held accountable. I need to be better at it. In fact, I'm at war with most of my neighbors. Maybe it's a day, it's a day of repentance and starting over. There's some folks over that will be over here that would love to pray with you, some prayer partners that would love just to let you talk about that for a minute, pray about it, and then uh, uh, go from there and be different. What if you could be the best neighbor your neighbor's ever had?